Science Talk will begin right after this. Hi, everyone. I'm Andrea Alfano. And I'm Brian Stallard. And we're the hosts of Base Pairs, the podcast about the power of genetic information from Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory. The stories we tell involve some big issues that may seem totally unrelated to genetics, like climate change. We'll tell you how genetic tools could help in the fight against climate change a little later on in this episode of Science Talk. Stay tuned. I'm Tanya Lewis, the assistant news editor at Scientific American. And I'm Andrea Garleski, the collections editor. And on this episode of Science Talk, we preview a new Scientific American podcast where we talk about some of the stories we've loved from this month's issue in the section called Advances. Tanya, can you tell the listeners what the Advances section is and and what it covers in the magazine? Sure. So Advances is basically, you know, our front of the book news section where we cover cutting edge advances and discoveries uh, in fields ranging from technology to health to neuroscience and many others. Great. So what is on tap for today? For today's episode, we've got a story about how cheetahs choose mates based on the smell of their urine, Mm. and a story about a woman who has a rare visual condition where she can only see moving objects and colors. Wild. Let's dive in. Believe it or not, that's the sound made by a full-grown cheetah. And our first topic is a story called Tinder for Cheetahs by Joshua Rapp Learn. It's about an innovative approach scientists are taking to help zoos breed cheetahs in captivity. Zoos often try to mate the big cats with cheetahs at other zoos that are less genetically related, and they fly these animals all over the country. But it turns out the female cheetahs are very picky about their mates. So to up the odds on these cheetah liaisons being successful, researchers presented female cheetahs with urine samples from several males and let the females choose which one they like best. Um, how does one exactly go about collecting cheetah urine? <laughs> Very carefully. <laughs> I'm um, sure. To collect the cheetah urine, we developed ultimately ordered cheetah urinals. That was Regina Masati, Director of Animal Care and Conservation at the Endangered Wolf Center in St. Louis. We used a, a galvanized steel plate. Um, we constructed it so that it funneled into a collection cup. And cheetahs, if you put different smells on the ground, they love to roll on them and rub on them. Um, Cheetahs take it a step further and like to urinate on them. Um, So we could cheat a little bit and put some fun scents on the tree, the same tree that the collection, the urinal was on. And it made them want to mark that scent. And so Mm. we would be able to capture the urine through their wanting to mark that uh, fun scent that we gave them. What is the fun scent you gave them? You know, we did a couple different things. Um, the one that worked the best um, was Obsession for Men uh, <laughs> by Calvin Klein. Um, that almost 100% of the time it got them to urinate. <laughs> but after a while, once they got used to that scent, we would try other things, other different perfumes. We'd try catnip. Um, we would try um, other males' urine, um, something that wanted to made them want to mark their territory or a scent that was interesting that they wanted to mark and claim as their own. I feel that Calvin Klein needs to know about this. Yeah. There's a whole new market, an untapped market for that. (laughs) (laughs) Why were you gathering urine to offer to these female cheetahs? Like, why did you think that that would be um, important in helping them find mates? So when we um, first identified the need for this research, um, the reason for that was uh, cheetah reproduction in uh, across the United States in many areas wasn't doing as great as 
the species survival plan had hope. Uh, a species survival plan is uh, a group of experts that come together to manage an entire population of uh, endangered species, and they're very careful about who breeds with whom to make sure the genetics stay healthy, um, and they manage the population across the United States. So whether a cheetah is in a zoo in California or one in Florida, they know the exact genetics of those animals, um, and may they pair them based on that. And one of the things that they watch for is when they put these pairs together is do they have cubs? Do they actually mate and uh, produce a litter? And unfortunately, the um, production of litters was not as high as the uh, professionals had hoped. And so um, one of the things that we had seen is that a few of these institutions, the reproduction was pretty consistent um, and they were doing well. And we realized that one of the things that they were doing differently is they had what was uh, nicknamed <laughs> the lover's lane. Well, they have multiple males, and they walk this female down a corridor surrounded by these different males' enclosures. And she can walk by these males and investigate them and figure out which one she likes the best. That sounds so, great. Yeah, like the che- <laughs> <laughs> it was, yeah it's uh, like cheetah speed dating, basically. Exactly. Except exactly with, with what urine. It is. <laughs> the hope with the cheetah urine study is first we needed to see if females were even interested in the urine. Because um, there's a lot of different ways that animals uh, make mate choices. How the animal looks, how the animal acts, its behavior, um, smell, but smell in different ways. And so this was kind of the very groundbreaking beginning part of uh, really investigating cheetah mate choice. And first, we just wanted to see if the cheetahs, the females, were interested in the urine. We assumed they were based on um, previous studies of a lot of different mammals that urine kind of seemed to be the um, Facebook or Tinder of the animal world where you can get so much different information from it, whether you're related to an individual, whether that individual's ready to mate, whether they're healthy, um, all things that are important when you're making a, a mate choice decision. But to add to that, we also offered the female male urine sense of varying relatedness. So she would had three choices, one that was a good match, that would be a good mate choice, one that was a medium choice, maybe a second cousin, maybe not the best mate <laughs> choice, but not the worst, and then one that was really closely related, a father, brother, uncle, um, something that, you know, an individual that she shouldn't want to mate with. And so we offered these three cents to see what her reaction was. And what did you end up seeing with these choices? Well, that was the exciting part. Um, so we saw that there was um, significant response to the urine sense of more distantly related males, the ones that would be a better mate choice. Um, so that was very exciting that maybe we need to now take the next steps of, of seeing if that translates to mate choice. But if it does, that maybe in the future, we can, instead of shipping the males across the country, we can ship you know, urine from several different males, let her smell it, see which one she spends more time with, and then choose that male to send hmm. versus the one that maybe she's not as interested in. What kind of, when you say to see if she spends more time with that urine sample, what does that look like? What sort of behavior is she displaying and how are you presenting it to her that she would spend more time with one versus another? So we um, put it in a PVC pipe, small PVC pipe that had a hole drilled in it. We poured... Um, 
a small sample of urine on a piece of gauze and stuck it in the PVC pipe and, and um, sealed that. And we actually tied them to trees because we found that the cheetahs like to carry away the scent to an area that we couldn't watch them and observe them. So we um, put it on a tree, chained it to a tree, and then we watched, observed her to see what her uh, reaction was. Did she sit by it longer? Did she smell it more? Did she lick it? Did she paw at it to try and get at it? Was she showing behavioral um, interest in it compared to the other scent that was there? Mm-hmm. Um, and so we offered two scents at a time. Um, and we did that uh, so that all combinations of the pairs were done multiple times um, over the course of several weeks. And um, it was neat to watch, you know, just to see. We had no idea what they were going to show, what, what the response was going to be. But it was neat to see um, what their interest was. And when we offered the scents, we didn't know which scent was in which um, pipe so that we couldn't have our own bias towards it. Um, so that was that was a really neat part of the the project is to really see what the female's responses were. The cheetah has really, and that's one of the reasons I love the cheetah so much, is that it's always stood out to me as this misunderstood animal that is just gorgeous. And and like I said, you know, as an apex predator, it's so important to the ecosystem um, that as much work and research as we can do to learn more about these animals to help us with their conservation efforts, the better. And that's one of the reasons that we did the captive program looking at mate choice here is because the zoological institutions across the United States play an integral role in conservation of animals out in the wild. The captive population is kind of a Noah's Ark for the wildlife, for the wild population, meaning that if the wild population crashes any further, we ever need to reintroduce cheetahs. We need to have a healthy, genetically viable population in human care at zoological institutions and making sure that we are managing animals so that they stay healthy is really important to that potential need. We'll be right back. Hey everyone, it's Brian and Andrea again, the hosts of the Base Pairs podcast. Did you know that about 50 million years ago, the concentration of atmospheric carbon dioxide was nearly nine times what it is now? But that doesn't mean we have nothing to worry about right now. It does mean that we can look to the past for helpful hints while tackling climate change today. It took more than half a million years and the help of one very small plant to cool the planet to the temperatures we enjoy. And Andrea spoke with a plant scientist right here at Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory who hopes to learn from those tiny yet mighty plants. More about that in a bit. Let's switch gears now to our second story. It's based on an Advances article called Seeing Blind by Bahar Galipur. A woman in Scotland named Elena Canning is blind, except she has this incredible ability to see moving objects still. She can also see bright colors and sometimes the outlines of objects if they're right next to her. Melina suffered from a stroke about 20 years ago and was put into an induced coma when that happened. And when she woke up, she had suffered tremendous brain damage and was completely blind. Over the coming years, however, she eventually started regaining these particular vision abilities. I wonder what it's like to have this condition. Everything's in front of me, but I feel as if I'm underwater, as if I'm in a swimming pool and you're swimming under the water. That was Melina Canning herself. We spoke to her about her unusual visual condition. Everything is there. All, all the colors are there, uh, but it's as if it's all floating in the water. 
And if I look to my right hand side just now, I ha I see an outline of my coffee cup sitting to the right hand side of me. It, it's bright red in colour because colours are good for me. So I, I know where it's sitting. And if I just stare at it just now, I see the, the roundness of the coffee cup at the top and then I just stare and stare at it and then I see the handle at the right-hand side and then I know then to go and pick it up because just see the outline. And this condition has a name. It's called Riddock syndrome, named after the neurologist George Riddock, who first described this phenomenon in brain-injured World War I soldiers. I suffered a stroke 19 years ago now, um, and I, I had been placed in an, an induced coma for 52 days. And they told me, so I had the stroke while in the coma. So then when I woke up, I discovered I was left blind. And that was in the February. And then over the months, you know, by, by the, the June, I felt as if I was seeing some colour. And then by the September, it was just really improving. Mm. Um, you know, when I say improving, I mean, it was, it was colours I was seeing, really. And do you have to be moving in order to see this? Or does it just sort of, you can see the outlines, um, even when you're standing still? Yes, even when I'm standing still, I'm seeing, seeing this outline. You know, I'm just sitting here and I'm not moving, I'm just staring at the cup. The interesting thing is, I've said in the past in interviews that if my husband or anyone makes me a cup of coffee and they bring it from the kitchen into my, my living room to sit it down beside me, I can tell straight away if I just stare at the cup, I know straight away if the handle is facing to the left or to the right. And because I'm right-handed, I'll say to my husband, the handle's not at the right-hand side for me to pick it up. So then I move the cup in order that I can see the handle at the right-hand side. Now, I never ever saw that about a year ago. I mean, it's only, or maybe longer than you, I mean, it's only recently I've started seeing that. Very, very strange. So it's sort of the, like a dynamic condition that, you know, has been changing over the years. Oh, yes, yes, because, yeah, when I first woke up, that was February, um, no, it would be February 99 when I had my stroke. So when I first, first woke up, I was completely black, couldn't see anything. And it's just been changing over the last 19 years. It would just start small things, you know, like seeing the colours. That was all maybe I used to see was a bright colour. And now it's, you know, I see, like I said, I see this cup sitting here and the handle's there. And I can see the steam coming from the coffee cup. But if you're sitting next to me and we, we look at each other, I can't, I can't see you. I don't see your face. Huh. But... If we stare at each other and then I say to you, can you blink your eyes? I see the movement of your eyes blinking mm. and then I look Can I get maybe your chin and then I say to people, right, speak to me. And as you speak, I see your mouth moving. Mm. But that's all I get. I don't get the full picture of your face. 
one of your your doctors gave you a rocking chair sort of along the process, thinking that that might help you create your own movement so that you could see things as they're, you know, you're the one moving. Did that help you at all? Yes, it did in the beginning. It did, yes. That was uh, Professor Gordon Dutton that told me to do that. And my my mum actually had a rocking chair at the time, so I used to sit in that and the rocking movement. But yes, that was when he first told me to bring things into focus. He mm. would say, you know, shake your head, move your head. You know, if I dropped something on the floor and then I would look down to find it, and I would just stare and stare at the floor, but I couldn't see it. And he would say, well, shake your head and bring the item into focus. Mm-hmm. So I would, and then I would just see it lying there on, on the mm-hmm. floor. We talked to Dr. Jody Cullum about what's going on in Melina's brain that enables her to see movements and colors, even though she's legally blind. I'm a professor at the Brain and Mind Institute and the Department of Psychology at Western University in London, Canada. Can you just tell us a little bit more about the injury that caused this condition? When uh, Milena was about 38, she developed a respiratory infection and she went into a coma for almost two months. And when she came out of the coma, she was completely blind. And then gradually over the next months, she began to experience some different types of vision. So while she was in that coma, she had a stroke or a series of strokes that damaged a region of her brain about the size of an orange at the very back of the brain. And that's an area called the occipital lobes uh, where visual input that comes from the eyes uh, gets richly processed. And she's missing most of that uh, visual cortex at the back of the brain. And yet she still has visual input through what we think are some side roads into some of the higher level visual areas. So the way that I would think about it is um, that you've got one really important hub of the visual system missing, but there are still some side road connections that can bypass that hub and get to other areas that can use visual information. And so she's learned to rely on those those side roads um, and take advantage of them in order to do things. But she certainly doesn't have anything near normal vision, uh, but that doesn't mean that uh, she doesn't have useful vision. What can you say about um, what your team and you have learned about how the brain processes visual content um, using Molena as a, a test case and um, doing brain scans and collecting the data that you have? So the most striking thing that we found from the brain scans was that although she was missing most of her visual cortex, uh, she did have an area spared. There's an area that's been quite well studied uh, by neuroscientists that goes by the name MT, the middle temporal area of the brain. And it's just kind of right on the sides of your head, just a little bit behind your ears, behind the tops of your ears on both sides of the brain. And that area we know in typical participants will respond whenever people see something that's moving. And she shows spared activation in that region when she sees something that's moving, even though all of the brain tissue that's behind that is completely gone. So we think that her case has really provided strong support for a critical role of this region in the ability to perceive motion. And it also provides a nice counterexample to another single case in the literature. There's another patient uh, who I think has passed away now, but while she was alive, she had this 
syndrome that was almost the reverse of what Malena has. So this other patient had had damage to this area MT, this area that's involved in motion, and she could see everything except motion. So for this patient, um, she didn't have any problems recognizing things, but uh, she couldn't make decisions based on motion. So say, for example, she was pouring tea into a teacup, she couldn't see the height of the tea rising. She would have to use other strategies like putting her finger in the teacup and feeling when it reached the right height. Or if she had to do things like crossing a road when the, there was traffic, she had a really hard time knowing when to go because she couldn't gauge the speed of the vehicles. So she was a patient who was missing the ability to perceive motion because this area was damaged in her. Malena's almost the opposite of that. She's missing most of the rest of her early visual system, and yet she's got this area that can still perceive motion. Um, and that area that can perceive motion has a lot of connections with other areas in the brain that can do things like reaching and grasping and navigating and so on. And so that's why we think she's been able to use some of these um, residual abilities in order to do those kinds of daily functions. Hmm. That was wild. Yeah, it's really fascinating. <laughs> it's almost like just seeing the world in strobe. I was exactly thinking that, like a strobe. Yeah. The old patient, that's how they describe it. If you've been, say, to a, well, a, uh, a disco or, or something where there's a strobe light uh, and you've seen how, you know, everything looks like it's just a series of still frames. And, and if you ever do that, you can try doing something like have somebody toss something at you and you'll have a really hard time catching it because you can't gauge the motion. So for this other patient who's like the the opposite of Milena, that that's kind of what the world that she experiences is described like. I think one thing that's important to note, um, and this is something that uh, our colleague Gordon Dutton is quite passionate about, is just raising people's awareness, both in the public and even in the medical community, that vision isn't just one thing. So those of us with normal vision have this sense that it seems so effortless. We just open our eyes and the world is there and everything about the world that we're used to is there. We can see the form of objects. We can see how they move. We can see the color and the texture and all of these rich things. And so we tend to assume when we hear about patients who are blind that the world is just going to be black to them. They're not going to see anything. And in Milena's case and other cases like her, we see that sometimes patients can have certain types of vision, but not others. So I think that's really the the most interesting thing about Milena is she opens up a lot of possibilities for future things that might be able to to be done to do therapies for patients who who have um, visual loss because of brain damage to enable them to to learn to take advantage of some of the residual abilities and the residual connections in the brain that may still be present. It's really an amazing case, and it's just wonderful that Melina was so willing to give her time to make this study possible. She's a, a really wonderful woman. She's um, stayed very positive about everything over the years. She's been incredibly generous with her time for her and her family to come to Canada and the Netherlands and uh, travel around to do all of these crazy tests that we do. Um, so we've been super grateful to her for um, helping to shed some light on, on what can happen in these fascinating cases. We'll be right back. Hey everyone, thanks for sticking around. We were about to hear about a plant that supposedly saved the earth from staying a hothouse climate. 
it was actually so hot that there were hippos in the Arctic. So, lay it on us, Andrea. What was this plant that changed the world? The plant that seems to have driven so much of this huge change is what you might call pond scum. It covered the Arctic Ocean, soaking up mind-blowing amounts of carbon dioxide. And today, plant scientists are looking to a similar plant called duckweed to help control the climate once again. But we don't have half a million years to do this. Right. But we do have genetic tools. Scientists put them to use on Base Pairs, the podcast about the power of genetic information from Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory. Find us on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to this new Scientific American podcast. We'll be back soon with another episode. Meanwhile, get your science news fix at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, and follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter handle is at Siam. For Scientific American, I'm Andrea Garleski. And I'm Tanya Lewis. Thank you.